thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. You're listening to a podcast from 702 and Cape Talk. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. Hello, Chris. Morning, Rich. How are you doing? Uh, well, I think I'm okay. How are you? <laughs> I, I think How I'm okay doing? too. Tell us about this Good. gene editing potential cure for blood disorder. Well, I saw this and I thought of Africa because the condition that's been looked at here is one which is uh, the most or the best understood blood disorder, the best understood inherited blood disorder in the world. Mm. But it's also very, very common in people of African ancestry and that's sickle cell anemia. Yeah. And sickle cell anemia occurs because there is one genetic letter wrong in the gene for hemoglobin which is the red pigment inside your red blood cells Hmm. and they carry oxygen around the body and this particular gene change is very common in Africans because by sheer chance it happens also to give strong resistance to malaria so it keeps the gene artificially circulating in the population at very high levels Hmm. and people who are carriers of that gene tend to be quite healthy but people who have two copies of the gene abnormal, in other words, one from their mum and one from their dad, means they can't make any healthy haemoglobin, and this makes them have sickle cell anemia. And what happens in these individuals is that the red blood cells, because the haemoglobin clumps together under low oxygen conditions, it deforms or distorts the cells, making them a sickle shape, and they lodge in blood vessels. This is painful, it causes joint pains, it causes bony problems, and other organs are damaged, and it causes anemia. Now, at the moment, the only way to really deal with this is to give people drugs which have side effects. You can give them blood transfusions which have side effects, or very radically, you can give people a bone marrow transplant. But it's not ideal, and we need a better solution. Well, a group at the University of California, Berkeley, have Mm. got a paper in Science Translational Medicine this week. It's Mark DeWitt and his colleagues, and they have taken the first steps towards effecting what they believe is going to be a cure for sickle cell disease Mm. in the future. Mm. What they've done is they've taken the stem cells from the bone marrow of individuals who have sickle cell disease, and these are the cells that make red blood cells. They collected them from the circulating blood, which you can do. They then, in the dish, add various factors which can edit the DNA of these cells, and this is a system which has been in the news a lot recently. It's called CRISPR-Cas9, and this is a DNA editing toolkit, effectively. And what it does is it recognises the incorrect part of the DNA. It cuts it like molecular scissors, snips out the wrong bit, and pastes in a correction. Hmm. They've used this technique on these stem cells and shown that they can turn cells from people with sickle cell disease who are previously incapable of making any healthy haemoglobin into cell, a population of cells that now make at least half of their haemoglobin um, from the adult healthy form of haemoglobin. And then what they said was, well, we need to know that if we were to put these cells back into the patient, because the idea here is that you'd have a patient with sickle cell disease, you could take some of these sorts of stem cells out of them, fix them genetically in the dish, so Mm. you didn't have to to risk the the DNA of the person in the person. And then once the cells have been genetically repaired, you put them back into the person, they'd go back to the bone marrow, and then they'd make healthy blood. 
but in order to prove that might work, the, the first steps they've taken in this study was having edited the cells, they then infused them into mice where the immune system nice. had been manipulated so that they wouldn't reject these human cells. Mm. And they went back four months later and they could find these human modified blood cells in the bone marrow perfectly healthy oh. and therefore capable of making the right sort of haemoglobin. So this shows that you can edit the DNA of these cells to convert them into cells capable of making healthy haemoglobin. You can also infuse the cells back into the bloodstream and they go back to the bone marrow and therefore one would presume although at the moment this is a study done in the dish and in mice, so we can only speculate, but you would presume that if you did this in a human, you'd be giving them their own cells back, they would go into the bone marrow and then make healthy blood cells for that person going on into the future. So really exciting study. It is. And you say this is prevalent in the African continent? Yes, about a quarter of a million children are born with sickle cell disease oh. every year, but the number of carriers is very, very high. Mm. And this is just because in areas where you see a lot of malaria, individuals who are carriers of one of the sickle cell genes, mm. they, although they, if you look in their blood, you can see that they have the condition, it doesn't manifest sufficiently to make them unhealthy. So yes. they have the benefit of being resistant to malaria, but yes. they don't have any of the disbenefit of having sickle cell disease. But of course, mm. if you've got lots of people in the population carrying the gene, then naturally you're going to see a number of individuals cropping up who occasionally have two copies of the gene because they've got both parents are carriers and yes. therefore one in four of those children is, is going to have the disease and this means that you do unfortunately have this situation where a quarter of a million kids are, are condemned to have the symptoms of sickle cell disease um, and then that's what they're born with. Chris, the challenge with this uh, scientific research is that it takes time before they can be implemented and the results um, bear fruit. Uh, how long are we going to be able to wait to be able to see this um, now practiced in humans? Well, uh, this is a hard question to answer because number one, our mm. priority is safety. Please because safety, when yeah. you are fiddling around with people's genetic information, mm -hmm. we know that cancer is a genetic disease. Yes. And the last thing anyone wants to do is in the course of trying to make someone better yeah. is to do something to them which once you've done it, you cannot go back. There's no reversing the process and you could leave them with an even worse prognosis. Yes. So it is absolutely critical before we go anywhere near this pathway mm. that people know precisely what they're doing they know exactly what the outcomes are and they also know that it's safe um, that's going to take time but take because time. this is such a powerful technique and mm. so many people are exploring it for so many other possibilities as well mm. it's being researched from many different angles and facets therefore this is progressing incredibly rapidly and given the huge gains that it could contribute not just to sickle cell disease but to people with many different genetic disorders and other blood disorders okay Chris. then it, it is potentially a huge step forward okay sure when we come when we come back chris we'll take a call from rebecca steve d and desmond 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. It's uh, 19 minutes past 10. Uh, welcome back. My name is Richard Kondo. I'm sitting in for Reedy uh, on 702 and Cape Talk. We are with the Naked Scientist, and you can call us on 021446 0567 or on 8830702. Now let's take some call, Chris. Uh, Rebecca? Hi there, guys. Um, I wanted to ask Chris, please. Um, I think it's the PCV vaccination at birth. It gave my daughter, and I know this happens often, a huge boil on her arm. 
And I wonder why this happens and maybe if there's something I can do to relieve the symptoms. Hmm. PCV. So what was the vaccination again? I think it was a PCV. It was one at birth. I'm sorry, I'm a bit ignorant. I can't remember. Um, oh, right. OK. You don't mean because sometimes babies get a vitamin K injection at, at birth? No, no, no. It wasn't. It was, it was some big vaccination. I'm sorry, I'm stupid. I can't remember what it was. But apparently I'm sure it's not it stupid. Gives, <laughs> it gives a boil. Well, the thing is, Rebecca, that um, the, the, regardless of, of what you're doing when you are, what you're giving in terms of vaccination, when we are vaccinating an individual, what you're doing is injecting into the muscle a solution which has got antigen, which is the thing you want the immune system to recognise, and some fluid, and it's also got something called an adjuvant in it. And you're squirting that into the muscle, in between the muscle fibres, and it splits apart the muscle fibres, and muscles have a good blood supply, and you're doing a bit of damage to the muscle. And that's a good thing because the damage causes inflammation, and the inflammation carts off the antigen to your local lymph nodes, mm. which are the glands that you can feel under your arms, you can feel them at the tops of your legs, in your necks. Those are... They're like lymphocyte school, where your white blood cells are being educated what to respond to. So it's a good thing you get a bit of inflammation, but sometimes the damage that's being done when you do the injection can swell more, and the inflammation can be painful. It shouldn't produce a nasty, pussy boil, but if there is infection that's that getting in at the same time, that could do it, or sometimes when we give in, uh, injections against certain bacteria. In the old days, in, in the UK, it's been discontinued now, but in many countries it's still used. The in injection we use against TB, which is given at birth, this also will produce a sort of slightly pussy lesion under the skin. That doesn't go into the muscle, it just goes into the skin, and it's because it sets up this chronic inflammatory area which is driving the immune system to respond to the bug. But I don't know particularly what that uh, in injection you were referring to is, so I can't comment any further than that more generically. Okay. Thanks, Chris. Uh, Steve? Yes. Hi, guys. Hello, Steve. Um, my wife's 45 years old. Yes. She's been putting various expensive creams on her face for the last 30 years. Yes. And if you add up the whole amount in gross, probably about 30, 40 kilos of cream that she stuck on her face in the last 30 years. <laughs> Where does it all go? <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Well, lots of it comes off on your hands, on your clothes. Yes. Uh, it dries out. And they wash it down. It breaks into the air. Yeah. gets washed down the sink. So yeah. you, you have put 30 or 40 tonnes of, of various things into the sewerage system, I would expect. And uh, <laughs> that unfortunately <laughs> says it all. Many of these creams are just emollients. And what that means is that they are substances that bind water and they soak into the skin and they take water with them and they therefore keep the skin nice and sort of well-nourished and uh, they prevent the skin from drying out. Mm. And this is, this is a sort of plumping effect because if you've got nicey, damp skin, it's, it sort of swells and, and looks nice and full. It doesn't look sort of craggy. Mm. Um, that's how they tend to work. But uh, at the end of the day, when they dry out, because a lot of these things, the, the, the mass of them is water, when they dry out, then they're just going to disappear because the water evaporates. So there's a range of things. One, wipe them off, wash them off, and uh, some of the water in them evaporates as well. So I'd say that's probably where they've all gone. Steve, are you happy with that? Oh, he's gone. Uh, D, hello, D. Yes. Hello. Hello, D. Yeah. So I was diagnosed with a sickle cell disease when I was one. So um, I've been taking the hydroxyurea for um, about six years now. But you were talking about um, the dangers of taking some of these medications, and I'd like to know your thoughts on that. 
Yes, well, I'm, I'm really pleased to hear that the story resonated with you, and thanks for calling in. The bottom line is that taking any drug has side effects, and it's not ideal for someone if they... But if it makes them better than they would otherwise be, then it's a necessary evil. It's a good idea to do that. There are a range of side effects with hydroxyurea. One of the things it does is it acts as an anti-proliferative agent. It stops uh, cells dividing, and therefore it can have a slight depressing effect on the immune system. It can increase the chances of a person succumbing to certain infections. But at the end of the day, if you're taking this and it's making you better than you otherwise would be, then for, for goodness sake, don't stop doing it. But... Um, Bear in mind that there are always consequences whenever you take any drug, whether it's an aspirin, a paracetamol, or in this case, hydroxyurea. Um, just as a comment, I'd like to say thank you to Narcan Armistorm, who is at Camo Alive, who just tweeted at Naked Scientists and mm. said, in, in reference to, I think it was Rebecca's question, yeah. um, she was referring to the BCG, which is the TB vaccination. I did mention that. This yeah. is this is the um, bovine TB which is an attenuated TB that we inject into the skin and it sets up a, a chronic inflammatory response there, driving a very good immune response so that you have your immune system pre-armed. So if you encounter TB later in your life, which one in three people in the world are infected with, very, very common, then you already have this more resilient immune response and it stops the bug from disseminating through your body. So it's a good way to prevent people getting what we call miliary TB. Mm. Okay, thanks a lot. Uh, Mark? Actually, yeah, let's, go, let's talk to Mark. Mark? Hello. Hello, Mark. Yes. Uh, I need to find out uh, uh, this issue of uh, quantum therapy. We use a machine to, like a joystick and uh, a computer. It's able to read the entire body and uh, really t t diagnose whatever d disease you have. I, didn't, I don't know whether you know anything about it, whether it works or what it is. No, I've not come across anything like that. Um, but the bottom line is that when you have a problem with some part of your body, then having a scan can sometimes show which bit of the body is going wrong. And when the person puts you into a scanner, which may be either, either an MRI, magnetic resonance imaging scanner, or a CT, a computed tomography scanner, which uses x-rays, then you lay on a tray and you slide into the scanner in the case of an MRI and you slide through a sort of donut-shaped ring in the case of CT. And it, gives, it rebuilds this amazing three-dimensional replica of the inside of your body on the computer. Now, the operator will use a joystick to control when you go in and out of the scanner, so that might be what you're thinking about, but I'm not aware of, of anything beyond that, apart from on Star Trek. It's, it's being used well, mostly worldwide, the US especially in South Africa, but what the patient does holds the joystick, and it's able to read your heartbeat, your vitamin deficiency, everything, and you pay a price for it. Uh, but I don't yeah, know. No, it sounds too good to be true to me. It sounds, it sounds a bit iffy. Um, yeah. if, if it was that good, I think most hospitals would have one, and mine certainly no. hasn't. <laughs> okay. Desmond? Yo, good morning, Rich. Chris, Hi. How are you doing? I'm all right. How are you? Uh, yeah. Look, an age-old question. Apparently, that, uh, our brain capacity and the, and the portion of it that we use yeah. is relatively small. Yes. Now, what is the other part of our brain for? How do we trigger that use? Will we ever be able to trigger that use? And if we do, what implications will it have on our intelligence, on, <laughs> on, on mankind, on, on whatever, uh, you know? Um, 
Yes. Well, I, I think that the, the majority of people listening to this programme are using all of their brain, of course. It's a myth, actually. I don't know where it comes from, but there's this idea that we only use 10% of our brains mm. all the time. In fact, I know people who probably only use 10% of their brains 10% of the time, but they're in the minority. Uh, the fact is that your brain is so metabolically hungry, it mm. uses so much energy and accounts for so much of the blood flow going through your body. In fact, one part in five, so one litre of every five that your heart pumps out goes straight round your brain. And your brain only weighs 2% of your entire body mass, even less in some people's cases. I've sat next to them on the aeroplane and on the bus. And the fact is that that is such a high cost to pay for any organ that evolution would not have allowed you to develop such a metabolically hungry thing to have sitting there doing nothing for 90% of the time. And you only have to look at someone who has had an injury to, them, to their brain or their nervous system and you can see that they always have a problem. It doesn't come and go 90% uh, of the time. So you use all of your brain all of the time but what you do do is to increase the activity of some areas of your brain more than other areas to attend to certain jobs and tasks because the brain isn't a homogeneous mass, a blob of cells that just all do everything all the time. Different parts of the brain are specialised for doing different roles. You mm. have a region of your brain which controls your movements, you have a region of your brain that decodes what you're listening to, you have a region of your brain that decodes what you're looking at. So if you do a task which involves looking at something or identifying certain shapes or listening to something, you will see the area of the brain that's specialised for doing that task become even more active than its baseline level of activity. It doesn't mean that all of the other areas of the brain switch off when you're doing that. It just means that there's an augmentation of activity in the area which is a bit busier because it's attending to the task that you are asking your nervous system to do at that time. So it's a myth that you only use 10% of your brain. You don't. You need all of it. You use all of it all the time, but some bits of it you increase their activity to focus on doing a particular task well. Chris, thanks a lot. It's a pleasure. Thanks, Rich. Okay. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.